Welcome to the Making Headway Podcast, a podcast for brain injury survivors by brain injury survivors, providing resources and camaraderie for anyone recovering from any type of brain injury, with your hosts, Aaron Martin and Mariah Morgan. Welcome back to the Making Headway Podcast. I'm Mariah. And I'm Aaron. And um, today we're going to pick up on a thread that we've talked about little bits here and there, but I, we've never really gone in depth. Um, we're going to be looking more about hormones We've heard from some of our nutritionists and maybe a few other specialists that hormone insufficiencies and changes are pretty common post-tyrannic brain injury, concussion, sometimes stroke, um, different types of bleeds, but we've really never dug in too deep. So today we're very fortunate to have Tamara Wexler. Um, sorry, Dr. Tamara Wexler. She is trained in endocrinology and um, specializes in neuroendocrinology along with reproductive endocrinology. She um, is highly trained, um, got to train at Mass General Hospital, um, a local favorite of mine, and also um, has been doing research at NYU. She has a, a telehealth clinic and we are very lucky to have her today to talk to us about all things hormone. Welcome, Dr. Tamara Wexler. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here and get the chance to talk about this uh, important topic. So I got to tell you, I had never heard the term neuroendocrinology until you guys really reached out to us. <laughs> I had, didn't realize it was a specialty field. What I is know, it? I wish we could see. Yeah. I wish we could see an audience right now to say, "Raise your hand if you've heard of neuroendocrinology," because I don't know how many hands we'd get. Oh, great question. It's a um, subspecialty field within endocrinology. So endocrinology is all things hormone. Which, if you ask an endocrinologist like myself, I would say that's really everything in the body. But you know, I'm biased there. Mm -hmm. um, neuroendocrinology refers to a specific set of hormones that are overseen by, by parts in the brain, but it's a, basically a subset of hormones. So it includes thyroid hormone, sex hormones, so testosterone, uh, testosterone or estrogen, and prolactin, um, growth hormone, and the so-called stress hormone or cortisol. So those are some of the basic hormones. There are others, so the, the, the system that is included with the neuroendocrinology includes both the pituitary, which we'll get to talk about today, and uh, the adrenal glands, and there are some other adrenal hormones that are that are important as well. So I don't mean to leave some out. I'm focusing on certain ones, but basically it's a it's a subset of hormones um, within the endocrine system. You know, I'm I'm thinking about when I learned in anatomy class, our adrenal glands are by our kidneys, right? Our pituitary glands yeah, and our brain. Next to the yeah. So mm -hmm. why why are we thinking about you know things down in our kidneys when it's our brains being injured? How do they all tie together? Oh, that's a great question. Okay, so the, the pituitary, I think of it as sort of a, a central piece of this. It is um, It interacts with the hypothalamus, another uh, part of the brain. So those, those are both within the brain. And then the hormones that come out from the pituitary affect end organs. So the adrenal glands are one of those end organs, and they have their own hormones, including cortisol, again, called stress hormone. It also goes to speak to the ovaries or testes, speaks to the liver, which makes growth hormone. So basically these hormones and the thyroid gland talk to other parts of the body. Um, so it's a cascade of, of hormones, basically. I refer to them sometimes as hormonal axes, but it's 
individual little little systems. Uh, hormone from the hypothalamus will stimulate something in the pituitary. That sends out a signal that will go to this end organ, which again can be number of things throughout the body. And then they talk back to each other. There's a feedback system, which is really elegant and keep, keeps things in balance. So it sounds kind of... use of the word elegant in, no. <laughs> right? in that case. You don't hear elegant. I feel like that science. gives it like... Yeah, the appreciation it really deserves. <laughs> when functioning, the body keeps things in balance in an impressive way. And if one piece goes out, it goes out of balance. So it's almost like how we think of our brain controlling our brain and our nervous system. You know, our brain controls our foot movement or our toe movement or our, any, you know, our breathing or everything. It's kind of the same way with our hormone system. You have. That's a great analogy. Instead of it being a nerve impulse here, it's a hormone carrying the message with, with, it's almost like, I guess you can think of it in the nerves, neural system, like a reflex back, but you do have that communication back. So for example, a thyroid may be a more common hormone that people think about. Mm. The pituitary sends a signal called thyroid stimulating hormone. That's the TSH that your doctor may measure once a year. And the thyroid puts out thyroid hormone in response to that. Well, that thyroid hormone feeds back to the pituitary saying there's enough thyroid hormone around. You don't have to have your, you know, the TSH is at a good level. If the thyroid itself is having a problem and can't put out enough thyroid hormone, the TSH goes up. It tries to drive the system. It knows there's not enough hormone around. If the pituitary is working, if the pituitary is not working, it can't mount that response and you won't have an elevated TSH. It'll look normal, even though it should be elevated. Hmm. I can talk, I'm giving sort of pieces of things, happen to go into more detail, yeah. but I don't really know if, how, let me know where to speak in further detail. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't heard much about neuroendocrinology from my um, neurologist. It hasn't been an area that people have driven me to. Just by doing a little bit of research, it sounds like it's very um, underdiagnosed and undertreated. Um, how would people know that they should be looking into hormone issues after a brain injury? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that there's um, a, a lack of awareness about it. And then that is what inform, like drives the potential underdiagnosis and undertreatment. You know, happily, there's more and more um, awareness and understanding of the important health consequences of brain injury like concussion um, and other types of brain injury. But this piece of it, the neuroendocrine piece, despite the fact that for some injuries it's quite well characterized, people really, there's a lot, it's, there's under awareness about it. It's just, there's, there's insufficient awareness about this area. And, um, and I think that it's particularly important to think about because so after brain injury, there's a host of symptoms people might have. Those symptoms overlap to an incredible degree with the type of symptoms you might have if you don't have sufficient pituitary-related hormones. It's only by testing that you know which are from a pituitary deficiency, but you can replace those and you can, to some extent, reverse uh, both the pituitary deficiency and then the symptoms that are due to the pituitary deficiency. So basically, there may be people who have symptoms that can be addressed by just replacing a hormone. And that's one of the reasons I get, I find it um, so important to increase awareness of it because it's it's one way you can also intervene in how somebody's doing after after a, a brain injury. I, I realize I'm going to start stumbling a bit without addressing the fact that I, I talk about pituitary deficiencies after concussion or 
TBI because that's the area, that's a body of literature that's the most complete. But there is a growing body of literature to suggest that there is also an increased risk of uh, pituitary dysfunction after other types of brain injury, including specifically subarachnoid hemorrhage or certain kinds of ischemic um, and sometimes included in that is hemorrhagic stroke. So there's just not as much information out there. So if I say concussion, that's because that's what the literature is about, but it doesn't mean it's specific to after concussion. I think because there's sort of this lack of awareness about um, hormonal implications after brain injury, whatever sort, um, it's really hard for people to take a symptom and associate it with the endocrine system. Um, and I, I, we were t- chatting briefly before we started recording about, you know, there are a lot of Facebook support groups for TBI survivors. There's the subreddit for TBI and for concussion. And the number of times you see someone say, well, my periods never come back after my brain injury or um, asking for advice from other women trying to get pregnant after yeah. brain injury or talking about sex drive after brain injury. Um, and those are just a few. I'm sure there are others that I don't even necessarily connect. What would you say are the most common um, symptoms that people might uh, stumble across but not necessarily know what the root of the cause is? That That's a great question. And I'll address both that question and then maybe specifically we can talk about some of the reproductive endocrine issues or, or issues that women, questions that women might have about whether or not it's related to their brain injury. In terms of um, in terms of symptoms that might be related to hormone dysfunction after brain injury, they're, they can be quite vague and nonspecific. They um, fatigue and brain fog or mental fog are primary among those. People just not feeling like themselves, the sort of general quality of life metrics are, are uh they're even I use I use the term metrics. It's because we sometimes use questionnaires to try and get a sense of things and to to follow them over time. But it's basically just not feeling yourself. Change physical changes can occur. Those include changes to one's period. Those include um, uh, changes to um, uh, fertility at, at different times. Um, they also include changes to body composition. So weight changes or changes between like muscle um, and how things are working. Exercise intolerance uh, can sometimes be an an issue. Uh, There are cognitive changes. So this brain fog or slowed thinking, sometimes feeling like like something that you used to be able to handle well, you just can't. And that um, I think that overlaps also with emotional with <laughs> mm-hmm. emotional sequelae. So you can have um, mood changes also. So it's not that all of those changes are because of a hormonal problem. It's that hormonal problems can cause those changes. And so without looking, you don't know if that they're, if they're playing a role or not. Right. I, I do like to be clear with with um, with people that there is absolutely a higher rate of pituitary dysfunction after. Um, specifically traumatic brain injury, but other types of injury as well. Um, but that doesn't mean that every symptom is due to it. So they people shouldn't necessarily ex- expect a full return to baseline just because of pituitary replacement. But you don't know without looking. And it's certainly, I mean, anybody who has a pituitary deficiency, replacing it will help. Will help how they feel, will help them physically. Um, it just may not be a complete return to pre-injury interesting that you bring up brain fog. Um, I would not have necessarily connected those, but um, coincidentally, a couple weeks ago, someone was asking me to explain brain fog um, post-TBI and and how I would describe it to someone. And I was like, honestly, it's really hard to explain, but the closest thing I've ever experienced to, to it outside of my TBI 
is first trimester um, exhaustion and fatigue yeah. and um, memory issues, which, you know, like people call, you know, pregnancy brain. But now that you're bringing up hormones, it makes total sense, right? <laughs> that and sleep disturbance, right? So yeah. sleep disturbance is pretty common after brain injury. It's also a part of having kids for many people. Yeah. And so the sleep disturbance itself can also, um, you know, yeah. certainly in- enhance that confusion. If you know, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I, I do think it's interesting because, um, so many of us who are brain injury survivors accept brain fog as a part of, you know, what we go through. And it certainly may not have something to do with hormones, but, you know, it's also good to know that that can have an effect. Yeah, we know that, it, that a lot of this information comes from also what we know about people with pituitary deficiencies from other things such as pituitary tumors. Tumor here, not meaning cancer, just um extra cells in that area of the, in that gland. And, and so the symptoms can be quite similar that the, the overlap can make it feel difficult. And, and I wonder sometimes if that's why there is, um, uh, less testing than I think there, there could be for certain patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, if you don't look, you can't tell. Right. Um, Mariah, you asked, you mentioned also, um, questions about fertility or, um, or other issues that may be raised in, um, on, on, uh, chat and chat rooms. We know that there are a lot of things that impact, for example, both fertility and um, menstrual cycles for women. Stress included among them never helps to talk about that, right? Because it's not going to reduce stress, but changes to diet, changes to weight, all those things do, but so do hormonal changes. So the fact that somebody might be having changes to their period after, um, or, or changes to libido, the reason I separate that is change, changes to libido can come from other things as well, right? as can menstrual irregularities, but one of the reasons behind them might be changes to the hormones. And that can be looked at, right? If somebody is begins to have um, irregular periods, and this persists for more than, say, three months after a concussion, um, it's worth considering that maybe it is reflecting um, a hormonal change. Uh, certainly, if there's absence of period, that would absolutely be something to look into. Sometimes I think that women who are older may be underdiagnosed because it's assumed that they're menopausal. And a simple test will tell you whether the problem is ovarian, uh, the, the ovaries no longer make estrogen, that's menopause, or because the pituitary no longer makes the signal. That's a pituitary problem and should increase the concern for other pituitary problems. So you're not necessarily going to give estrogen to somebody who is who has been menopausal for a while and is not otherwise on estrogen, but knowing that it's a pituitary problem should make somebody start thinking, oh, I, I should really look for other pituitary deficiencies because they do sometimes go together. What test would... Would um, you have someone take if that was the case? Specifically for um, for estrogen related issues. Um, so if somebody is having regular periods, I don't test that axis because it's telling telling you that the system is working. And if it's, it's working, because yeah. they're on oral <laughs> contraceptives, you can't test the the hormones because they're being affected by what someone's taking. So if you're having regular periods, that particular system, the um, the sex hormone system, you don't need to test it. If they're not, if somebody's not having periods, for example, you would test different levels of hormones together. I, I referenced this briefly before when we were talking about the thyroid with looking at both TSH and free T4. And just to mention why I mentioned, why, why I um, addressed that earlier, patients who have um, checkups every year, sometimes a TSH will be measured. That's a really good indicator of whether the system is working in somebody with a functioning pituitary or hypothalamic pituitary system. If you have a history of any type of brain injury, 
I would prefer to see a TSH and a free T4. That's the active thyroid hormone measured together because a normal TSH is not always normal if somebody's free thyroid hormone is low. That tells you it should be higher and there's a problem centrally. Similarly, in the estrogen system, if you look at both um, an estrogen level, an estradiol level, it might show up as on your lab form, um, and the pituitary signal that causes the ovaries to make estrogen, which is F. F like Frank, SH, or follicular stimulating hormone is what it stands for. Um, in somebody that has an ovarian cause for low estrogen, somebody who has menopause or um, premature ovarian failure also, the estrogen will be low, the FSH will be high because the pituitary sees that the estrogen is low and it tries to increase the signal. It's sending out more and more signals saying, wait a second, there's, I'm used mm -hmm. to having more estrogen around and it sends out a higher signal and FSH is high in people after menopause. If the problem is central, pituitary or the hypothalamus, the FSH will look often normal, right? So it might be in the, it might be low, but it might be in the normal range when it should be high because the pituitary is trying to mount that response, but it can't. So you look at things, you look at the system together. It's really important to get the whole kind of, um, uh, I can't think of the word now, but basically you want to make sure you're looking at hormones from all the different levels. And so that each system you're looking at, not a single hormone level. So these are all it's blood tests done at a single point in time, or is it something you track over a period of time? That's that's a great question. For a lot of the different hormonal axes, you can measure it on a um, a single blood test. You may need to look over time, specifically with if you're looking at um, the the estradiol, the estrogen axis. You may want to look at different times depending on whether or not someone's having their period. Different times in what you hope is a, a normalizing cycle. Um, so maybe more than one blood test in men who might have testosterone deficiency as a result of a pituitary problem, um, not a testicular problem, but they're pituitary. You actually, to diagnose it, you have to do two morning blood tests to catch it at a, at a low time. Just one is not enough for the, for the diagnosis. And I'm saying morning here specifically, some of the hormones have to be checked in the morning because all of these pituitary hormones go up and down over the course of a 24-hour cycle. And they have usually a specific variation over the course of a day. That can be disrupted if sleep is disrupted. It can be disrupted after brain injury, but we know that they generally have this typical pattern. So if you're looking to see whether or not something's low, you wanna make sure that you check the blood at the time when it's supposed to be high. Otherwise, if you get a low value, it might be a normal low value. So you wanna look when it's supposed to be highest. That's relevant for the testosterone blood tests and for the cortisol, the stress hormone blood tests. Both of those need to be done in the morning if you're looking for a low value. Hmm, interesting. Sorry, dudes, you have to have two. Yeah, right. exactly. And get up early for it. You know, we're talking like early 8 a.m. Yeah. Um, the other, uh, you can often tell on a single blood test, there are some occasions in which you need to do what's called a provocative test. So that means that basically you um, try to stimulate the body to make the hormone and see if it is a able to make the mount the appropriate response. So that can be true for the stress hormone system. You want to see if the actually I'll I'll just talk about the stress hormone system yeah. separately if that's great, right? Yeah. People talk about yeah, people talk so. about stress hormone. So I'll say provocative tests are often necessary but not always for stress hormone. Somebody if you already have a level that's above a certain amount, that tells you the system's working. You don't have to do this the stimulation test, this provocative test. Growth hormone uh, deficiency will most often require a provocative test to diagnose it, which uh, complicates a little bit the um, evaluation process, but it's still very straightforward. It's just 
a provocative test is necessary, there's not really a good screening level for growth hormone, we've learned. We, we, um, there's a good screening test for whether or not there's too much growth hormone. It's um, a hormone called IGF-1. And it used to be thought that a low IGF-1 was the reason to continue on to do the provocative test for growth hormone. But now we know specifically including, but not limited to patients um, after brain injury, that IGF-1 can be normal in patients who fail the provocative test. So there, it's not just a simple blood test. It's a series of uh, blood tests for some patients. It's all done at one time. So you'll, you'll, you'll go in somewhere, you'll get this, the stimulus, and then your blood will be measured over time to see whether or not you can mount the response. It takes a few hours. So I'm not sure if this applies. Um, I've heard that men cycle like they cycle their hormones every 24 hours, but women, because our menstruation cycles can be anywhere from 20, you know, seven days, 30 plus days, um, we'll see different levels. Does that affect how you do hormone testing? Just male versus female? So it, the sex hormone axis, it does. Okay. So, um, and that's what I'm saying that you... You can say it's a single morning blood test or two if you're looking for low testosterone, but sometimes in women, not women who are having no period, but who are having abnormal cycles, you might want to look over time because it's hard to know if you're getting the right time point if somebody's not cycling normally, okay. if a woman is not cycling normally for that reason. Um, but you can often tell from from one blood test, just not always. I'm, uh, in, for, yeah. I'm in a hormone nutrition program right now. Uh, shout out to Aaron Holt Health. Um, it's called Your Hormone Revival. I, I'm doing it out of curiosity, honestly, post you know children and TBI to see what my body's doing. And we have to take a Dutch test for that. And you have to be very careful about like what day in your cycle you're doing that test. And it's fascinating, honestly. But, yeah. When you are doing um, blood testing uh, to, or, or urine testing for people who are trying to determine when they're ovulating at home, for example, um, the day in the cycle does make a difference. It becomes more complicated if you're not sure what your yeah. cycle is doing or what day yeah. you're on. Exactly. Um, yeah. 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 I, I was... Um, uh, finishing up breastfeeding while I was trying to figure out when to, <laughs> when to take this. And I was like, okay, I think that I, I was doing, I was doing the ovulation strips every day. Cause I was like, I don't even know what's going on right now. We yeah. sorted it, but <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. prolactin levels also, I, I mentioned, so the pituitary also stores prolactin also, also makes prolactin, but it, um, Prolactin is a little bit different than the other pituitary hormones. And um, we, I keep saying pituitary. I'm referring to a set of hormones made by the anterior pituitary. And we can, Aaron, you, you'd asked before, we were talking about sodium levels. That's more posterior pituitary. But the anterior pituitary um, also makes prolactin. Prolactin's a, prolactin, which is a hormone that um, allows breastfeeding. Prolactin is usually suppressed. So any involvement in that area or any damage to the to the area can cause an increase in prolactin. So you may get high prolactin levels after a brain injury. Um, sometimes those do not have much clinical effect. Sometimes it suppresses the um, sex hormone access. Um, you can have lower estrogen or lower testosterone in men because of a high prolactin level acting at the pituitary level. Gotcha. Wow. So it's all that all interacts. And in fact, that's why um, you know, in some people, breastfeeding can change your, can change your cycles. Yeah. Honestly, as a lay person, I have no medical experience. This to me is like, it's incredibly fascinating because we take so much about our bodies for granted, but especially anything hormonal, it's like, we just sort of think it's like magic mm -hmm. <laughs> and all of this, you know, happens behind a curtain. Um, but 
like the talking about it even makes it feel more magical, honestly, not to sound like a total geek, but no, it's, just like, I mean, it's, a, it's amazing that the body does all of this and we don't even think about it on a day-to-day basis. I agree. I do find it amazing. I got interested in neuroendocrinology because of a um, professor I had in medical school and just the descriptions of it and these feedback loops and the fact that the body just kept itself in equilibrium. I, I love it. I, I love studying it and talking about it and learning about it. So it, it kind of the way it's starting to sound to me is that we have the pituitary gland. Um, it kind of tangles in your brain, right? It's highly sensitive because it's dangling there. Um, and yep. that pituitary gland then does has like reproductive reproductive influences. It has um, for thyroid, like your... Um, fatigue versus being overexcitability. It has t- um, drivers to your stress hormones. It has drivers to your growth hormones. So maybe, you know, we've started talking a little bit about the reproductive part of it. Um, maybe we can start talking about some of those other issues that, or other chains that it's responsible for. Yeah, I, I, I that's, ex- and that's exactly how I tend to think about it. I think about there being essentially four different systems that are monitored and managed by the pituitary gland, the stress hormone system, the thyroid hormone system, the sex hormone system. We talked a a bit about that already. Um, I'll mention, Mariah, because you asked about it, that um, decreased libido can be a sign of decreased sex hormones. It can also be from other things. Um, And the growth hormone system. Um, and, uh, And I measure them each separately and I think about them each separately. Um, and I, again, prolactin, I kind of include within the sex hormone system, but um, it's its own hormone also. So it's kind of like the start of all of this um, has effects on like four different domino effects is the way it feels. I, I think that's a, that's a great way of putting it. I will cite you if I borrow that because <laughs> any one of these hormonal systems has implications throughout the body. So the thyroid, um, thyroid hormone has um, implications for your metabolism, for your mood, for your thinking. It also can affect your period, um, for your temperature sensation, all sorts of things for children. So I, I tend to talk about the symptoms that adults see, but in kids, they have effects too, and they can also affect school performance, behavior, growth. Um, so really broad, wide-ranging effects. Um, and while there certainly are certain symptoms where it it makes someone familiar with the area think, oh, that that really sounds like a pituitary problem. A lot of them really do overlap. And that's why it's it's great that we do have the testing and we do have excellent guidelines for knowing if there's a true deficiency or not. Okay. So you, you asked about the different um, systems, Erin. I can talk about them one yeah. at a time so if that's we've, helpful. We've kind of hit upon sex. Was there more mm-hmm. that we would be looking for if you're having um, sex hormone deficiencies besides the reproductive um, testosterone. I'm not really sure what men would be looking for. People for testosterone often think about it mostly as having sexual side effects, changes to libido, changes to erectile function. Again, that's certainly true, although those can come from other things. One of the more specific indicators that make that suggests it's important to look at testosterone levels is a change uh, or a decrease in frequency of spontaneous morning erections. That's a bit more specific than libido or uh, erectile function. But testosterone has 
like estrogen has um, implications beyond sexual um, side effects and beyond fertility, um, it is important in terms of bone strength, um, red blood cells, blood strength really, um, you know, muscle strength, mood. So also has implications and effects throughout the body, even though it's often thought about as having to do with um, sexual side effects. It's, it's far beyond that. Interestingly, there was um, a study done that looked at people who had what were thought to be sexual side effects. So for men, for women, it was irregular periods and for men, it was sexual side effects. And certainly they did have a, these people after brain injury had these side effects, had these symptoms. And certainly they did have a higher um, rate of, it's called hypogonadism of decreased estrogen or decreased testosterone um, due to a pituitary problem, but they also had higher rates of other pituitary problems. So those symptoms may not be as specific for some patients as we thought. Hmm. Very interesting. So let's um, talk a little bit more about stress. I know many of us after a brain injury are highly stressed, not only because we're a new person trying to come back into the world, but it's just a stressful world that we live in. Um, So what can you tell us about that? So cortisol is called stress hormone at times, and it not only goes up in times of stress, that can be emotional stress, it can be physical stress. it is really essential for supporting your body in times of stress. It helps support blood pressure, for example. So somebody who has too little stress hormone, who has a pituitary problem, for example, where they cannot mount the stress hormone response, it's, it's extremely important to find that out because, you know, heaven forbid somebody have another injury at some point, they may need that stress hormone ability to mount the blood pressure response. So out of all of the pituitary axes, the pituitary hormone systems. Um, It is the stress hormone system, the ACTH cortisol system, um, that if it is deficient, can in some cases be fatal. So that's the the one we look at acutely also, not just at three months. Um, And it's important to identify that one first, right? You don't want to start replacing another hormone if you're missing adrenal insufficiency. So somebody who truly cannot mount that response. Um, It's replaceable, uh, it can be it can be essentially fixed with giving replacement hormones, and I call them very specifically replacement and not treatment. You're not giving somebody medication as a treatment. You are replacing what their body cannot make at that time. But that's the first one to look at and to make sure that it's replaced before you even go on to think about um, or at least replace other hormones. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we just had a patient at the hospital who is a known subarachnoid hemorrhage patient who had lost their ability to control their blood pressure. So every time he'd stand up, he'd be, you know, 60 over 40 and then pass out or um, it's just interesting that all the different sequelae you can get from having a brain injury. Yeah. What and, word did and, you just use, Erin? Huh? Oh, sorry. <laughs> all the different, you just use? <laughs> the different side effects. <laughs> no, tell me the word. I want to know it. Sequelae? Yeah. Or yeah, like the, the side effects. Yeah. What yeah. is this word? <laughs> I've never heard this word before. Oh, yeah. The, I don't know. Am I describing it right? Sequelae, the other side effects Probably. from a brain injury. I don't injury. know. I just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe it'll come up in a Scrabble game someday. <laughs> it's, it's a good one. Well, I'm not going to tell you because it'll be um, my word, not yours. <laughs> <laughs> Does it have a Q in it? Yes. It did. Yep. No, so, okay. Yeah. S-E-Q-U-A-L-A-E. Yeah. E-L-A. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and the plural's in AE, so there you go. There we go. <laughs> Extra Scrabble points. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, when you, what you're describing, Erin, is an autonomic dysfunction, right? Mm. Like, um, uh, meaning that somebody can't control their blood pressure. Um, sometimes it's referred to possibly what you're talking about as orthostatic hypotension. Yes. You stand up and your blood pressure drops, or your heart rate goes up. That isn't always due to a cortisol problem, but you do also see those more often after injury. And, uh, and it, and, and it's really hard for those patients. I mean, it's, that's a really hard symptom to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Yeah. He essentially that, couldn't end up getting out of bed, but you're right. It wasn't, yeah. it didn't end up yeah. being from an ACTH deficiency, but. Yeah. It's often looked, I mean, you, you test you it for that, it. but it's, it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's often for something else. And that's a, that's really a, a difficult symptom to know how to how to try to help with. The stress hormone axis is, again, straightforward to, to check and then to replace if you need. Um, I can talk about the other axes one by one. Yeah. Also, if you want. So yeah. thyroid hormone, I talked about a little bit already, but um, to sum it all up in one, in one piece. So your thyroid gland, which sits at the base of your neck, um, makes thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone has all sorts of effects in the body, um, including metabolic effects. People who have a thyroid deficiency might feel cold more often, might gain weight, might have changes to their skin or their hair. All of these changes can happen from other things also. I want to be careful to, to specify that. It doesn't mean you have a thyroid problem, um, but thyroid does affect those things. And it's controlled, again, by TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone put out by the pituitary. Um, and if the pituitary is not making enough TSH, you're not going to have enough thyroid hormone. And in order to measure that, you need to look not just at the TSH, which is the typical screening hormone done in patients who don't have, um, a, where it's not thought that there's the possibility of a pituitary or hypothalamic pituitary problem. Um, and that's appropriate in, in general. But if you have a potential reason for a pituitary problem, you have to look at TSH with the free T4. So that you're basically going to feel, um, like you said, hair changes, um, fatigue could be one. What, what do you see? Yeah. The, the pe people might note, people might note hair skin changes. The ones that are, um, most commonly seen, um, this isn't anybody with hypothyroidism, not just a pituitary reason for it can have changes to their periods in women can, um, are predisposed to gaining weight in some patients also can feel kind of sluggish, can feel depressed. Um, and again, you can have those skin and hair changes. Um, kids will have uh, poor school performance um, or may have poor school performance if they are hypothyroid. Um, and, uh, you know, hy hypothyroidism is not uncommon amongst all endocrine problems, but it's most typical as a problem from the thyroid gland. It's just, you have to test it more specifically if it's potentially from the pituitary gland. It's not the most commonly seen thing. If you look further out, you know, at least three months out, but say up to a year out after brain injuries, it's much more common to see either among the pituitary dysfunction um, deficiencies, it's more common to see a growth hormone deficiency or a sex hormone deficiency than thyroid or adrenal. But we, we test all of them, partly because you might have them and partly because you have to replace them in a certain order. I alluded to that by saying stress hormone has to be addressed first, but the order in which I tend to think about them is the order in which you also have to replace them. So um, first you replace any adrenal insufficiency that with the stress hormone cortisol, something related to cortisol, uh, then thyroid hormone, then sex hormones, then growth hormone. And in fact, you can't really diagnose growth hormone deficiency if somebody has an, an um, 
non-stable imbalance in their sex hormones. So you, you really do go in order. Hmm. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the growth hormone because I know, you know, for kids, I can see that as being huge, but for adults, I don't quite understand the connection. I have yeah. the same question. What does that mean in an adult? I am so glad you asked. And I think this is one of the reasons it may not be looked at as much in adults, quite apart from the, the world of brain injury, because growth hormone is important and essential for, for linear growth. And that's, that's what help, helps you to grow. Um, but that's not the only thing it does. And in adults, it has um, effects throughout the body. It affects the brain. So you'll see cognitive effects and mood effects, the, the brain fog, the cognitive slowing that, that can happen, the changes in quality of life. Those are all things that happen in patients who have growth hormone deficiency that can be reversed with replacement. Again, these can also happen from other, stemming from other causes, but in somebody who has known growth hormone deficiency, they may have those effects. It also affects bone strength um, and uh, is important for bone strength. So you can have more bone fragility if you have insufficient growth hormone. It's important for body composition. So people who, um, growth hormone itself is important for building muscle and for making sure you to keep um, fat and visceral fat, which is kind of the internal fat around your organs in balance. So somebody has a deficiency, they may have a harder time building muscle and they may gain more fat or fat around their middle. Um, it is um, important also for the, the use of those muscles. So it can, can be important for kind of um, exercise tolerance and energy. Um, fatigue certainly is another effect of growth hormone deficiency. I'm trying to think in order to make sure I'm not, I'm not forgetting any. Oh, and it also has implications for cardiovascular health. So a lot of the metabolic risk factors, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain it. But basically, it's um, growth hormone, like all the pituitary hormones, I like to think of it as, I call it a Goldilocks hormone. It has to be just right. Too much is bad and too little is bad. Too much growth hormone is, is bad for your body overall and particularly has mortality and morbidity implications in term, around cardiovascular effects of it. Too little is also bad and it also has cardiovascular effects. People can have blood glucose issues with either too little or too much growth hormone. So growth hormone has a wide range of effects throughout the body um, and that's why it's really important to think about in adults as well as in children. You no longer will have the growth implications. Um, certainly in kids, if kids have had a brain injury and their height velocity, how quickly they are growing falls off, it starts to change. It's important to think about growth hormone, but there are other side effects that you can look for in adults as well as in, in teenagers. Interesting, I have no idea about the implications of that in yeah. adults. So the, the, the brain fog, which is the t a term I use because a, a patient first mentioned it to me, but then you kind of see it in the literature and throughout. Um, I don't know that that is specific to growth hormone, but it's one of the things that I hear over and over again in patients who do turn out to be growth hormone deficient. So a couple questions that this has led me to. The first one, um, you know, a lot of these symptoms that come from the hormones um, that you're mentioning are also symptoms that are brain injury overall. So yes. should every brain injury survivor experiencing these symptoms be looking for a neuroendocrinologist just to make sure they're okay? Or how do we know when it's beyond normal? Because none of us know normal. I, I, <laughs> well, right. And, and I think that is such a good question. Um, um, it, it calls, it, it brings up the question and part of when do you know when to screen somebody mm -hmm. for pituitary dysfunction after a brain injury? Lots of people 
have brain injuries, um, especially that we know you include milder concussions among those possible causes of pituitary dysfunction. Um, and there have been lots of studies to look at something more concrete to know when to, when to screen. Is it only somebody who had to be hospitalized? No. Is it only somebody who, um, uh, who had a certain appearance of their brain on imaging done? No. Is there some biomarker or some antibody that tracks with it? Yes, but not clinically relevant. Really the best we have is symptoms. So when do you know when to screen? You know, I don't in fact know the answer. So I fall back on if the symptoms are persistent, I, I wouldn't look at anything in the anterior pituitary systems we've talked about other than the stress hormone system before three months. If something's persisting beyond three, and often we don't look at growth hormone until six months. Many people don't. But if it's persisting beyond that point and consistent and um, uh, and and to to a degree that is disturbing somebody, I think that it's worth thinking about looking at it. Um, if it's getting better, is it worth just waiting? You know, that sort of depends on how someone's doing. If it's not getting better, is it worth looking? Yeah. We also know that um, these things can recover over time or they can show up later. So there are studies that are done in both adolescents and adults at three months after an injury and 12 months after. And the particular studies to which I'm referring were done in patients who had traumatic brain injury, concussion or, or more severe brain injuries. And um, patients who had pituitary hormonal deficiencies at three months sometimes still had them at 12 months, sometimes got better. And sometimes when they didn't have them at three months, they'd show up at 12 months. So it's important to think about this over time also. The nice thing about a replacement is that you don't have to commit to it for life. Let's say you're found to be deficient. You take the replacement. You can always retest you know, a year later to see if it's still necessary. Um, and it can often help with recovery in other ways because we know that energy and um, you know, body composition, including muscle, are all impacted by hormones. It, it, it may have implications not yet sufficiently studied for other aspects of recovery from brain injury. I'm so glad you framed the answer to this question that way, because I think what we've seen over and over again is, you know, no brain injury is the same. And also just because, you know, I had a subdural hematoma with a massive bleed does not mean my symptoms, you know, six months out, a year out, are actually worse than somebody who had a concussion. Like, I think there's this sort of um, expectation that, you know, if it was a less traumatic brain injury, that the recovery is actually going to be easier somehow, but that's not necessarily the case. And I, I think that we need to repeat, repeat, repeat that, because I think there are people who have maybe milder concussions who are wondering, like, do I even need to raise red flag about these symptoms because yeah. I should be getting better? And it really wasn't that bad. Not necessarily the case. Yeah. Is <laughs> um, my injury so, worthy of investigating more? It's almost yeah, like, yeah. There's, there's like this imposter syndrome, yep. a, a sort of occurrence in our world, our TBI world or brain injury world, um, based on like the scale of your initial impact or injury, but I don't necessarily think that's the right way to measure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And that's why I was trying to say, if, if someone is having symptoms that are bothering them, right, that are making an impact in their life, um, uh, again, chronically, consistently over time, I think it's worth looking. It's also worth, you know, it's also important to be prepared that it might not be a pituitary deficiency. It doesn't mean the symptoms aren't real and aren't due to some other aspect of the injury, you just don't know if it's from a pituitary problem unless you look. And you can't 
fix it with a replacement hormone unless it's from a pituitary problem. So it's, it, you know, I, I, I balance this and I had the importance of saying it, it might be something pituitary and that can, that can be fixed is the wrong term, but that can be replaced with wanting to make sure that it's clear that, you know, the symptoms might not be from a pituitary problem. And I worry a lot about the, the disappointment for somebody who's already had to probably see a lot of doctors and is getting exhausted of trying to pursue these possible lines and the potential impact and, and disappointment that it's not something that's kind of a, a quick fix. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to point out too, how your body changes over time, because that's yeah. a common theme that we hear too, is People are like, you know, I've been experiencing this for a year. It's taken a year or two years for me to find the right person who can fix it. Well, maybe some of these symptoms, especially in the pituitary um, thing, didn't show up until later. So even if you'd had that person earlier, you may not have gotten the answer you look were looking for. Um, so it sounds like it's important to continue follow-up. If it was normal and things are still going on, you know, maybe it's worth getting it checked again. If if the if either new symptoms show up or if things are getting worse, mm. then I do think it's worth thinking about that. Okay. So if if there's a listener out there who is hearing all this and is nodding their head but isn't sure what to do next, um, what would you say to the person who's like trying to figure out like, well, who do I go to now? How do I talk to someone about this? That's a great question. I think it's why it's really important that there are, are um, you know groups such as the two of you um, that, that people can reach out to. Um, I think that a good place to start would be um, a, you know, a care provider, a physician, or, or NP that, that knows the patient well to ask about it. Not everybody knows about it, and so I worry about just stopping there, right? So not even all endocrinologists um, have experience with this um, sort of specific post-brain injury pituitary dysfunction area. Um, if somebody has a, a rehabilitation medicine uh, physician, a physiatrist, they may be someone to go to, a, a neurologist, um, certainly a, a neuroendocrinologist, but I, I also... Um, suggest that in this case, it's worth bringing up, you know, I, I have, I have read or I've heard that there is an increased rate of pituitary deficiencies after brain injury. And I wonder if my symptoms might be from that, you know, how do I go about getting that evaluated? Um, and while this is, you know, the worst possible time to ask anybody to be their own advocate, it really might be necessary here to say, well, gosh, if, if you're not familiar, is there someone you can refer me to, or just to reach out to someone who, who is familiar with it? And is it possible, you know, other areas of my brain injury recovery um, have been my normal, kind of my pre-brain injury self, things like attention deficit issues, emotionality, anxiety, got turned up with my brain injury. Yes. So it wasn't that it didn't exist before, it's just now worse. Yeah. Is that, you know, that that gives me a little bit of the imposter syndrome feeling, like, is it really worth following up? This is just me on an amped up level. I, I worry a lot that that women specifically, but not only, um, who have symptoms feel like maybe it's just me. Maybe it's you know maybe it's stress. Yeah, stress will absolutely have real physical and emotional effects. Also, by the way, but I think that this is this um, absolutely can happen. I see um, in the past year, I've seen a lot of uh, patients who feel like they're kind of in constant fight or flight, like high startle reflex, much more anxious. I don't know whether that's the pandemic. I don't know whether that's a, a brain injury. I don't know if it's related to their pituitary hormones or not. I certainly see it a lot. 
And I do know um, others who have uh, other neuroendocrinologists who found that sometimes treatment and replacement with hormones also can help with that. Um, so I don't know if that's helpful to say. I, it absolutely happens. I think it's worth raising how to intervene. I, 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 I don't always know, but I, um, I do think it's important to kind of validate those, those symptoms. And absolutely those things get, get ramped up and not always in a way you can control easily. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's hard, it's hard to control and you do, yeah. you know, certain doctors are really good at being like, you know, let's investigate it. But others are like, oh, you should be better by now. You know, your bleed wasn't that bad. Oh. It should be fine. So, you know, it just leads you to those, like, do you look, do you not? And I love your uh, message of what's the harm of looking. <laughs> yeah. I will say it's, it's painful to even hear that. And unfortunately, even outside of uh, people who've had a brain injury, it's not uncommon as a neuroendocrinologist to have people who feel like they're, they've not been heard mm -hmm. by others. And it is upsetting and frustrating to know how common that is. But I think it's, it's really important to make sure that people know that if, you know, everybody knows themselves the best, right? You may not know why you're having a feeling or a symptom, but you know that it's not your norm. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I do agree that it's important to look and I do at the same time, cautioning, it may not be this, but then we'll, let's see if we can think about what else can help. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think the more encouragement in that arena, the better, honestly, because there's no harm in checking things, um, especially if you're feeling like your gut's telling you something is not right. Yeah. yeah. And and even if you're told, well, it's not this, that doesn't mean you're not having that feeling or that, that, that real change from your the real shift from your baseline, it doesn't mean it's not happening. It just means that it's not from this. You have to keep looking or, or thinking of what else might, might help. Yeah. Um, I often like to separate knowing the reason for something, um, which we always like, or at least uh, I always like to know the reason for something, um, and helping to manage it. Sometimes there are other ways to help manage it even without knowing, although, you know, isn't it nice to know the, the reason it's at the same time? Mm -hmm. I, I know what you mean. I had a back issue a long time ago and um, I never had any clue like what the root of the issue was. And I finally saw a back specialist who like was able to tell me the name of it. And for some reason, just knowing the name and being able to say like, this is what the root is. It was such a relief to me. <laughs> I don't know why, but having something to point at and say that's it, yeah. it is helpful, but also then moving forward and saying, okay, how do we fix that? All right. It gives you the road sign what path to start looking yeah. down. Yeah. So yeah. is there any connection? You out, like your, your geography. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Know where you're headed. Is there any connection between people that acutely have hormonal issues? Um, I know we, I don't know if listeners remember this, but I had syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone directly after my brain injury. I was on fluid restriction for a month. So is there any, um, you know, a lot of people have acute issues right away. Is there yep. any connection yes. between acute and long-term issues? Great question. Um, the simple answer is no. Mm -hmm. That having an acute issue early on, whether it be a posterior pituitary problem with sodium levels, such as you experience, or if it is um, an anterior, like the stress hormone problem where you do intervene early on, doesn't predict it later. Even the acute stress hormone deficiency doesn't predict a chronic stress hormone deficiency. And the, um, the, the SAADH or the flip side of that, DI that can happen also, 
often acute, often transient, sometimes you get one then the other, in fact, um, does not predict later problems. Um, doesn't mean you won't have them, you, you still need to look, but it, 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 it's not a, there's not a correlation between it, and that's a great question. Um, there's a much higher rate of acute issues than there is chronic issues. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and you may have a chronic issue if you never had an acute issue. I know we're starting to wind down in time, but one other gland I wonder about the thalamus isn't How many that also. Do you wonder about it. I right? know, right? <laughs> I'm I'm a nurse. I'm very uh very astute. Here. <laughs> no, um, the is the thalamus gland something? Is that thalamus hypothalamus? I've been is that the hypothalamus I've been referring to, and I and I'm really glad you asked because I um I struggle with wanting to be both clear and and also precise. So I keep referring to pituitary deficiencies. We don't always know if it's the pituitary or the hypothalamus. They okay. are part of that system that then um, sends signals to these other end organs we've talked about. So for like we talked about the thyroid system, right? Thyroid stimulating hormone made from the pituitary. Well, that also is stimulated by TRH, uh, thyroid type of releasing hormone from the hypothalamus. That so that's this whole. Um, there are basically three levels in each of the the neuroendocrine systems: um, the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and then the end organ, the adrenal gland, the ovaries or, or testes. The it's the liver that makes growth hormone, um, which has implications throughout the body um, in terms of growth hormone and um, the thyroid. So. Um, the hypothalamus may be uh, the, the cause of some of these problems. There's not a lot of, um, there aren't a lot of studies that have looked at the, the difference. There's not a, a strong management difference. It may have some implications for testing. Okay. Um, I'm not sure that was the most concise answer, but it's a really good question. And basically, when I say pituitary dysfunction, it, it might, in fact, be hypothalamic dysfunction. We don't always know. Okay. No, they think it, it's just good. I want to draw for anyone else who's getting into the nitty gritty that if you think your brain is involved in something hormonal, a neuroendocrinologist is your person. <laughs> it's not like she's just looking at pituitary or he, um, any, any brain. Right. It's big picture. Yeah. And it, I mean, especially given that there may be such broad implications and effects throughout the body, you know, fertility, fatigue, you just, you just don't know unless you... Unless you start to look. It's yeah. pretty amazing, honestly. The whole system. Elegant. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, well, thank you, Dr. Wexler, so much for your time. Honestly, I feel like we just dipped a toe in the water and could probably talk for hours more. But um, to our listeners, if you want to hear more or learn more about what Dr. Wexler does or reach out to her, she does have a website. It is neuroendocrineassociates.com. Um, and do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what they might find there? Um, sure. Well, it's it, it's changing, but there will both be some information on um, on pituitary system overall, um, and uh, that's what's really being being built out. How to contact me? Um, how to contact the clinic if you wish to be seen clinically? Um, so that's it's it's meant to be you know additional information, but also how to reach out when you want additional information. And um, I know it, it can be really hard to start to get answers in this area. So um, I always like getting questions from people. And in fact, as I'm sure you can tell, I could talk about this forever. It's only hard being virtual because I like to always sketch it out. So this is, you, you, you can see me, uh, you know, starting to kind of try draw things in the air. Um, but, um, but, but I welcome other questions and I'd be delighted to talk more about um, any aspect of this at any time. Um, thank you. And to the listeners, neuroendocrineassociates.com. 
Um, we'll have that in our show notes as well, if that was too much of a mouthful for you to write down quickly. And please do reach out to Dr. Wexler directly if you'd like to. And thank you for joining us today, as always. It's always a pleasure. Um, I think that's all from us for today. Mm-hmm. So this is Mariah signing off with my co-host, Aaron. We will talk to you all next week. Thanks for joining us on the Making Headway Podcast. For more information and show notes, visit makingheadwaypodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Check us out at Making Headway Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and share with your friends. Catch you next time. All topics are intended to be used for educational and entertainment purposes only. The podcast is not to be used as a substitute for medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare provider for any issues or treatment considerations you may have. For our full legal terms, please see our website at makingheadwaypodcast.com. This podcast was recorded, mixed, and mastered with love at Stout Heart Studios. Sun rises across the ocean. 